thank you so much for joining us. I'm Coach Mickey. And I'm Mel. And we're so glad that you're with us today. And if this is your first time joining us on Coach Mickey, Mel, and Friends, come on in and make yourself comfortable. Grab your favorite cup of coffee or whatever beverage you are drinking in anywhere you are in the world. We love hearing your comments, your questions, and your suggestions of what you would like to see and hear from us. And uh, we are so grateful that you're with us each and every week. And uh, we are also grateful for our guests because... We are celebrating our first year anniversary today and uh, for going into our second season. So how exciting is that, Mel? Yeah, super excited. I know. I know. And it wouldn't happen if it wasn't for you guys being with us on a regular basis and also to all the guests that have taken the time to be with us. But um, we are really excited today because this is one of my absolute favorite subjects and things to do. And I'm sure it's going to be yours once we get going here. And uh, but I'm going to tell you a little bit about our guest. And as usual, you guys will probably figure out who it is before I introduce him. But uh This is really going to be fun today. Uh, He is a two-time Emmy winner who has changed the world in food television and by creating and developing an executive producer for the groundbreaking show, Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. Uh, Before that, he was a network news producer, and he was based out of London, Frankfurt, and Budapest. He's traveled through Europe and Africa and the Middle East, uh, doing things and covering some of the biggest stories in the world and developing a passion for some of the world's most incredible food. Uh, and that's why this is going to be fun today. Mm-hmm. You, ha- um, I'm just going to introduce you. David Page, thank you so much for being with us yes, today. Thank you. thank you. Well, thank you for having me and happy anniversary. Well, thank you. Thanks. Thank you. And by the way, I, I did not get the memo that expanded the available drinking beyond coffee and water. So. Oh, okay, yes, it does. It does. Please, I, it I, does. Uh, I'm drinking coffee, but I would not necessarily label that my favorite beverage. So. <laughs> well, it's uh, we, we try we try to be uh, open to everybody because you know in other places of the world they're drinking something other than coffee. Yeah, yes, it's five o'clock somewhere. <laughs> it's five o'clock. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Uh, one of the things that really intrigued me, and I, and I got to be honest with you, I was amazed um, by this next thing that I'm going to read in your bio. And what I love about this is you take the region that you were in and collaborated it into the food. And I think that's pretty much everything that you kind of encompass anyway. Well, look, food is beyond being wonderful and delicious and you have to eat at least some of it or you'll fall over Mm -hmm. food is a gateway to cultures and when i was first sent overseas by nbc i had never considered the possibility of leaving the country and all of a sudden i was flying all around europe africa and the middle east um to countries i'd never been to or learned about one after another and I pretty quickly figured out as I scrambled to to fill in a huge hole in, in, in my information bank that you could tell a lot from the food. Uh, first of all, eating it with, with residents of those countries uh, was a great opportunity to discuss everything. But beyond that, I mean, you know, the, you go to Paris, uh, it's going to be a leisurely meal, and, and that reflects the Parisian and much of uh, the rest of France's sense of how one should live a life. On the other hand, you you go to Strasbourg in France uh, on the uh, east uh, east border, 
And the big dish is chacrut, which is a huge plate of sauerkraut topped with hunks of pork and or sausage. And that's clearly a Germanic dish because it represents the fact that uh, this particular region, the Alsace, changed hands between France and Germany repeatedly over a course of centuries. You go to you, you go to Greece and share a, a, a table full of meza, you know, the small plates that are communally shared. That is very representative of the fact that, that Greece is a very community-oriented society. I mean, Epicurus, the, the philosopher after whom we have named um, things that uh, regard eating, you know, as Epicurean, Epicurus uh, wrote that you should choose your dining companion before you choose what you're going to eat, because eating by yourself is no better than eating like a wolf. So, yeah, I, um, I learned a lot through food, a, a tremendous amount. And, and I found a whole lot of foods that I loved that I didn't even know existed. Mm. Wow. Can you name one that you can? Yeah. Um, you know, th there are uh, a growing number of Ethiopian restaurants in the United States now, but when I first went to Ethiopia back in, 86 or 87, it was a relatively unknown cuisine in the United States. And I fell in love with the national dish, which is a spongy kind of pancake used to pick up um, a spicy meat, um, which I think was goat, but I, I can't I can't swear to it. And that's a phenomenal dish I, I, I'd never had before. Um, it, it, and there were so there were so many. I mean, I, I hate to say this, but. Until I moved to Germany, I never would have tried blood sausage, but it's pretty damn good if you don't think about what you're eating. <laughs> wow. That, it, it's pretty amazing, especially traveling through Europe, how different cuisines have different meanings. I know when I was in Madrid, we were filming. One of my favorite cities on the face of the earth. Continue your story. No, no. I, it is fun. We had, we stopped, we stopped and it was a three hour lunch. And, and, you know, going into a place like that, when you're just going into work and they're like, no, this is what we do. And it, it is very um, accepted. And we should look at sometimes those cultures because, wow, what a difference it made because you're right. It's about the gathering and, and the company and enjoying the food and, and understanding, you know, what life's all about. And it's, it's, it really was amazing. It was eye-opening for me to sit and just enjoy a meal instead of hurrying up to eat something so you can continue working. Well, um, one of the things about Spain's uh, one of my favorite places on earth. In fact, just a couple of years ago, my wife and I vacationed there and it was basically a gastronomic tour from Madrid all the way down the South and back um, where I had my, my first barnacles and they were very good. Um, but one of the things you see in Spain, and, and, and this is repeated in many ways in other Mediterranean countries, but what you see, and this too uh, is um, a revealing look into the culture and its history is you see very simple dishes prepared from the ingredients next door that are terrific, that are just amazing. I mean, you went to Spain, you probably had pan con tomate, which is basically nothing more than grilled bread with yeah. smushed up tomato and a little olive oil. And I got to tell you, um, as made in Spain, 
it's unbelievable. It'll knock your socks off. Um, we actually went to cooking class for a morning in, um, where the hell were we? We were on the coast anyway. And, um, I have enough facility with Spanish left over from high school that if it happens in the present tense and there's no sense of conditional about it, I can sort of almost communicate. I was the only person in our cooking class who had any facility with Spanish at all. So the grandmother teaching the course decided I was the star pupil and she started throwing sentences at me at the, at the speed of light, but <laughs> oh. uh, we, you know, so I just nodded, but we made some, some first we made, we made pan con tomate and, and she explained one rule of Spanish cuisine is pour in more olive oil than you think you should. And then pour in some more. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, and one of the dishes we made there was what what the Spaniards call tortilla, which is actually nothing like a Mexican tortilla. It, it's a kind of a rather puffy omelet uh, filled with a number of things, but mostly, most prominently, potatoes, and sort of unstuck from the pan by flipping it over. And it's one of the great items on earth. And if you said to some snobby foodie. You know, what, what, what's, what are your favorite foods? You get a list of things in a reduction with a dollop of caviar. And I got to tell you, um, this omelet's on my top 10 list. Wow. Now you, you have uh, taken a lot of this information and you've kind of incorporated it into your, uh, into your book, Food Americana. And from what I was reading and, and looking into it, um, is that pretty much the premise where you have taken food that we have experienced or has been brought over here through the years and we've put kind of an American twist on it, you know, and how much of that do you, how much would you say having an American twist is different than what you've actually experienced in the actual regions, you know, when you're trying well, to yeah, yeah. First of all, you're, you're opening the authenticity debate. L l let me get there in one second. The premise okay. of the book. I went looking for American cuisine. I, I'd lived in a number of places. I traveled to a number of places. I can identify what Americans think of as French cuisine, even though there are different regional cuisines in France. What everyone thinks of as Italian cuisine or Greek cuisine, even though, again, th there's really a bunch of regional cuisines in, in every country. Nonetheless, back in the States, I said to myself, what's American cuisine? And I went looking for it. And my premise is that we built a uniquely American cuisine by integrating various dishes from other countries' cuisines and modifying them and evolving them and making them our own, which gets to the question you asked, is there something inauthentic about American cuisine? No, it's not inauthentic at all. It's its, its own cuisine. Mexican-American food is not the food you eat in Mexico for the most part. Chinese American cuisine, for the most part, is not the cuisine you eat in China. The, the same with Italian cuisine um, or, or, or sushi. Um, now, I, I picked certain Keystone items because they have become so Americanized in terms of our like for them and our familiar. Pardon me. Uh, I must be having an adult beverage unbeknownst to <laughs> familiar, familiarity with them. Um, that they're a, a potential go-to dish anywhere, anytime, which is why I consider sushi part of American cuisine. I don't consider Vietnamese food, even though it's popular in many places, 
to be part of American cuisine because it's not everyone's possible go-to on every day. You know, we get tripped up in that authenticity debate. There's always, you go to a great Chinese American restaurant and some food snob at the table is going to look down his or her nose and say, well, that's not authentic, meaning that's not what they eat in China. Well, yeah, but every cuisine evolves anyway. One of the most popular dishes in China among young people these days is scrambled eggs and tomatoes. That That's not what our Chinese food snob is thinking of. Having said that, there are wonderful restaurants offering opportunities to eat food as eaten today in other countries, and one should experience and enjoy those. I was taken for the book pre-COVID to a huge Chinese food hall in Flushing, Queens, a borough of New York, uh, the neighborhood where I was born, Jewish and Italian at that time, overwhelmingly Asian now. Um, and much of the much of the food served there is nothing you'd see in a Chinese American restaurant because there are now enough young um, Chinese immigrants in the United States that in certain places you can make a good living selling the food they really love to them instead of Americanized Chinese food to Americans. And increasingly, a, a few brave um, non-Chinese are, are trying these foods. And it, it look, it, we have a terrible um, hang-up in this country about eating awful uh, interior body parts. Much of the rest of the world includes that sort of food, organ meat and such, as a staple of, of their cuisines. And the day we visited this food hall, I, uh, among the many dishes, uh, the many items I had in many dishes, there was duck blood, there was tendon, there was artery, there was tripe. And you know what? Um, it was all delicious. It was fantastic. Um, you just have to uh, be willing to get out of your comfort zone a little bit. A friend of mine, well, actually my wife's cousin, who works in China a lot. He has an amusements company and the equipment like ski ball and such is manufactured at his plant in China. So he's there a lot. We recently went with him to a Szechuan restaurant here in New Jersey. Um, and he and I ordered, uh, just cause it was there, um, Szechuan, um, tripe and tongue, which mm. sounds disgusting and was absolutely fabulous you know one of the things that chinese cuisine prizes that we in america don't is a wide range of textures in addition to a wide range of flavors uh in the united states we're, we're pretty hinky about things that are mushy or, or gelatinous whereas in chinese cuisine that's part of a of a buffet of textures and i gotta tell you um Americans don't tend to open themselves up to things that sound scary, but there's an awful lot of food that on first blush sounds scary. Yeah. That's just kind of like in the South. Uh, we have a delicious food. Most people know what it is because they know how I am. Liver mush. Yes. So, yeah. Have you tried the liver mush before? Yeah. And look, look every, every culture has its version mm -hmm. of a way for people with no money to extend protein mm -hmm. with other things and to not waste anything. Um, and liver mush is, uh, well, hell, we have Scrapple in Philadelphia. Us 
Um, we Ashkenazi Jews have something called kishka, which is fat and grain and spices stuffed into, well, in the old days, it was stuffed into like um, stomach or intestine. Now it's stuffed into plastic. But every culture, um, the Scottish have haggis, which I love. Um, when I was covering Northern Ireland for the NBC Bureau in London, I would take an early morning flight to Belfast and it was a Northern Irish airline, but for some reason their standard breakfast dish was haggis on the airplane. And I just looked forward to that. And people <laughs> thought I was nuts. <laughs> <laughs> it is a little intimidating, you know, and you've heard about oh, it. Close your eyes and taste just it. Close your eyes and try it. Well, <laughs> that'll work. Look, and, and I, I, I look, I'm uh, subject to the same queasiness. When I was a kid, my grandmother made something I loved till I asked her what it was. She told me it was brains. I never ate it again. Isn't that funny how we have uh, a way of judging, even, you know, oh, yeah. even once you discover what it is? Yeah. You know, when I was, when you were in China, you know, you were talking about China cuisine. I was in China for a short period of time and I was in like rural China. Ooh, and you they, had some good yeah. food. Yeah, they served us scorpions, and yeah. the, the people, and and honestly, I had no problem eating it, you know, because I'll try anything, you know. So for me, it was like this is actually pretty good. But everybody was so caught up on what it was compared to giving it a, a shot and get, and seeing if they even liked mm-hmm. it to begin with. And to me, it was you know, it was like oh yeah, this is great. There, well, there were some things I didn't like, but but I would say yeah, there, I would say majority of it was like it was really good. Well, it's fascinating because we've kind of got this funny demarcation line about what's food and what isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, I, for many years, I owned horses. My my daughter was a, a competitive jumper for a while. And the concept of horse meat as a food would just disgust me. On the other hand, it's perfectly accepted in France. Um people love to eat rabbit except when you look at all those little easter bunnies you think ooh so you know it's <laughs> we it, it, if it's if it's edible it's edible and and frankly um given the degree of poverty in the third world and the difficulties um keeping up with the global population's need for food the reality is insects are becoming a more and more important source of protein in many places. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and uh, at one of the ballparks in, uh, I think it's in San Diego, they, they serve are yeah. crickets insects. I guess they are. Yeah. yeah. They, 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 they serve um, a cone full of fried crickets. I wish you had it. How is it? It, it? You know, it's just crunchy. I mean, if you okay. get past the fact that it's cricket, you can't tell the difference if you're putting that or a chip in your mouth. I mean, honestly, <laughs> they're they're crispy. That's it. And they've got flavor. Like some are ranch flavored, some are, you know, spicy. I don't and, think they yeah. grew up ranch flavored. I think that was the <laughs> market edition. Yeah, we're, we're raising ranch flavored. Maybe cricket, they're Montana okay. crickets. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, I think they have cricket tacos too i've seen that i haven't tried one i would try it but yeah i believe and i could be wrong but i I believe they actually have a culinary history back to either the aztecs or mayas in mexico and or south america but uh that's off the top of my head so if it turns out to be wrong don't sue me (laughs) we've all you to it 
<laughs> yeah, and it's okay. I married my lawyer, so what's that? <laughs> so all the places that you've traveled and the things that you have experienced, what would you say is your favorite? I mean, your absolute favorite that has been brought that has been had has an American twist on it. What what would you say is your favorite? Overseas? Um yeah. yeah. Spain. Mm. Uh yeah, no, I, I think the available variety of cuisines and foods in Spain. Uh, And I'm colored by the fact that fewer Americans seem to go to Spain. Um, But no, Spain, Spain does it for me. It's, uh, and I love Italy. Uh, I'm sort of fond of the South of France, but no, Spain, uh, when, when you drive the coast and I'm going to say something that, that will shock people. I've only been Madrid and South. I have never in all of my experience been to Barcelona or the broader Basque country. And I very much, that's very much on my to-do list. That's nice. I said, you have traveled quite a bit of the world, but besides that, you have uh, had opportunities to interview some pretty amazing people. And, you know, when I was reading through here, what I was going to mention earlier is um, you were there uh, during Checkpoint Charlie in East Berlin. And, and I know there was other times that you, you know, you interviewed some pretty incredible people. Um, And one of the things I like that you said was that the food seemed to be the commonality, you know, that that kind of brought it all together, you know, so like, you know, for example, when you were, when you were interviewing um, Omar Gaddafi and, and all these, and Yasser Arafat and all the, and obviously being there during that timeframe, the, when you interviewed these people, did the food, and I, this may be just an off the cuff question, but because there was so much food involved, did you find that doing that type of work in that job, having that, uh, that possibility, that ability to be eating at the same time, make it easier and more comforting to to be with these people. Well, what's interesting is I ate with Arafat. I didn't eat with Gaddafi. Um, I I had a, a couscous for the first time, waiting to talk to him, served by his staff. But one of the things is, especially in the Middle East, the concept of sharing a meal. Um, is is almost essential mm-hmm. to creating any kind of relationship. I mean, mm-hmm. we were, I'll give you a couple of stories here. Um, we were going to interview uh, uh, Arafat at the time he was uh, still considered by the U.S. government to be a terrorist. And I think we caught up with him in Khartoum. I'm not sure. But um, before the interview, there had to be. Um, a kind of ceremonial breakfast with a long table with his people and our people. And it was like two or three in the morning. Uh, I'll tell you a funny story. Um, uh, and not to minimize the, the hate involved here, but to the PLO Israel did not exist, should not exist. And the name was never spoken at, at best. They would refer to the Zionist entity. And those of us who traveled in the Middle East had two passports, one for Israel, one for all the other countries, because if you showed up at one of the other countries with a passport stamp for Israel, that was not going to be helpful. Anyway, so we're sitting at the table with Arafat and all of his guys and we're having breakfast. And it's always the sound man who who makes this kind of faux pas. All of a sudden, he pipes up when he sees a bowl of fruit in the middle of the table. He says, oh, blood oranges. 
I love blood oranges. I haven't had some one of those since I was in Israel. Oh. And then I don't know if you remember the I think it was I don't know which brokerage, but when they talk, everyone listens. The entire table just went silent for what seemed like an eternity. It was probably like five seconds. Everyone decided we're just going to forget the fact that he said that. And then conversation resumed. Oh my gosh. <laughs> the, the, the more important point is that, yes, you have to share a meal. Now, with Gaddafi, you, you want a funny Gaddafi story? Yeah. Um, sure. Doesn't involve food. Um, and and I, I say this, I want to be really clear here. There's no aspersion to anyone non-binary. The story is all about how Qaddafi uh, would react to something. So the CIA, this was back in the 80s, uh, leaked to the New York Post that they had intelligence that Qaddafi, in addition to using all sorts of psychotropic drugs, liked to cross-dress. So the Post mocked up a picture of him on the front page in a dress and heels. Although, to be fair, they were low heels. Anyway, um, uh, so I'm set to interview Gaddafi. It's the first interview after the United States military has bombed his house um, and apparently killed. This is not funny. Killed um, an adopted child. Um, and they were eager to show off the damage to the house. So I got a tour of the house, which included he had a round you Hefner style bed with blue velveteen um, armrests on the sides with controls for like the stereo. Anyway, so I got the tour of the house and then Gaddafi comes in for the interview and it's, uh, I'm the only American there. They wouldn't let my crew in. They were shooting it. They were going to give me the tape. They provided the interpreter. The reality is Gaddafi didn't, he obviously can't use one today. He's dead. But um, at the time he spoke, if not perfect, damn good English. But for political reasons, he would answer questions through a translator um, in Arabic. Uh, a, it was political, putting him on the same level as anyone speaking English. And B, it gave him more time to think. Um, so I do the whole interview with him. I ask all the correct political questions. And then I say, I have one more question for you. And the New York Post says, the CIA says, you like to dress up like a woman and you take a lot of drugs. What do you say to that? And the interpreter looked at me like he was going to be executed if he asked the question. He was just, he was frozen in horror. He didn't say a word. And then Gaddafi broke out laughing because obviously he spoke English and he understood the question. Um, so, yeah, I asked Gaddafi if he cross-dressed. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> I like the fact you got a reaction. At least was a laugh. I know. <laughs> yeah. Well, he, and then he blamed the Zionists. <laughs> wow. And like I said, you have traveled a lot. Now, when you uh, came back and, and decided to actually do uh, produce some of the shows that you did through Good Morning America and, and bringing all the different foods and, and uh, producing the, the shows that you did, um, what was what was kind of your insight? Like, what was your uh, vision, I guess, when you started uh, uh, diners, drive-ins, and dives. Like, what was your vision? Because I was kind of reading how you well, were met guy and stuff. But so, what, what would it? What my, you my initial, for? my initial vision was not starving and having to sell my blood for plasma. Um, <laughs> 
I, I liked food mm-hmm. and I had been involved in food coverage at Good Morning America, mm-hmm. but I still wasn't a food journalist. Um, but I had left network news, spent a regrettable brief time at home shopping, don't ask, <laughs> and then opened a production company. And um, I wasn't getting any work. So I called up Al Roker, who had a production company, but also was on the Today Show, who had worked for me. I was the co-producer of the Weekend Today Show. Before he was on the main show, he was on the Weekend Show. And we were friends. And I said, uh, look, I know I could stand to lose some weight, but I'm starving. You got any work? He said, yeah, I'm doing a bunch of stuff for the Food Network. Why don't, why don't you subcontract some of that from me? So I did. Mm-hmm. And... uh amicably uh because he understood the real money was not in working for someone else i then started pitching the food network directly on possible shows and the uh the woman i was pitching the program executive she was a lovely uh, person she was willing to take my calls which is not often the case in in television and I would call and pitch a bunch of great shows and she'd say, no, thank you. And, and, and no, th- it would go on and on and on. Finally, uh, one day it was late on a Thursday or a Friday. I was in the basement office of my home on a small, um, hobby farm. We had horses in Minnesota and she kind of felt sorry for me. And while I had been at Roker, I had done a documentary on the history of the diners. She said to me, don't you have anything else about diners? I said, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm developing a show called Diners, Drive-Ins and Dives. And I told her all about it. And she said, that sounds great. Um, I don't know if she said great. She might have said good. Um, <laughs> we have a development meeting on Tuesday. Uh, get me a, a one sheet. That's a, a write up of the show uh, by Monday. So I got off the phone, you know, uh, thrilled because she had finally kind of almost sort of said not no to something. And then I had my work cut out for me because I had not been developing a show called Niners, Drive-Ins and Dine. <laughs> I had just pulled the name out of thin air or, or a part of my anatomy. I mean, <laughs> scatologically, you want to be. And I had made up the whole description on the spot. So I spent the weekend calling around the country. This was back in the days when people actually called people and talked to them on their cell phones. <laughs> and I put a write-up together, and um, they uh, shortly thereafter, they green-lighted a one-hour special. Um, and that, uh, interestingly enough, I, I said to them, uh, who do you want to use for talent? And they said, no, we got a guy, uh, Guy Fieri. And I, I didn't say to them, who the hell's Guy Fieri? They said he had won their Food Network Star Contest. I didn't say, what the hell's the Food Network Star <laughs> Contest? Because I didn't watch. <laughs> um, so I went and Googled him, and I thought, I'm screwed. Here's some cartoon character in short pants. Um, but he turned out to, to be an amazing yes. sponge. He didn't know a lot about TV. He was green as grass, but... He was easily teachable and trainable and uh, had a great natural presence for TV. And they wanted him in a primetime show. They had asked two big deal production companies to pitch something. And they figured this special would keep him on the air in front of an audience while they waited for the big boys to come in with something. Uh, Unfortunately for the big boys, uh, their proposals did not please the Food Network. The special 
had done surprisingly well in their mind. I didn't, I wasn't surprised. Um, and, and they, they picked up a short first season of diners warning me even after the first few shows did well that this thing probably doesn't have any more than a couple of seasons maybe three because there just aren't that many places out there um i left after the 11th season it's now in season 30 something so maybe they weren't quite right Uh, but that's (laughs) that's that's how i became a food i mean look in this business you're whatever you were last Right. I've been an investigative journalist. I've been a foreign journalist. I've been a consumer journalist. Uh, I've been a morning show journalist. I, it's, you know, I've been a hard news guy. It's, it's whatever the last thing on your resume says you are. So I guess I'm a food journalist. I love it. Yeah. I, I, I love food. Um, it's closer to my own emotions and my own life than covering uh, political meetings at NATO. Mm-hmm. Um, so there I am. I'm a food journalist. I love it. I love the fact that you just, you just did it. You know, you were like, this is what I'm going to do. And I like the fact that you flew by the seat of your pants, you know, you have to have enough confidence in your ability to tread water, but then you have to get it right. I mean, my first trip to the middle East after I moved to London, uh, remember I mentioned earlier, I didn't know anything about any country. Um, I was in Cairo, Egypt, for some event. I don't know what it was, but it was big enough that a vice president from New York was overseeing things. And he walks up to me in the bureau and he says to me, Paige, go to Khartoum. I said, okay. And he left the room. I turned to one of the locals. I said, where's Khartoum? He said, it's in the Sudan. So I said, where's the Sudan? He said, wow. first country south. So I went to Khartoum. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, there, but see, there's an element of this that we can all learn from. Just say yes. Yeah, say Figure yes. it out later. You know? Just yeah, but, yes. but there's, there's one element to the, that, that's important. This is a podcast, so I can kind of swear. Yeah, yeah. You can say whatever you want. Okay. <laughs> Bull, bullshitting's fine if you then put in the work. Mm-hmm. To pay off the promise. Yes. Saying you'll do something that you don't know how to do and then not mastering that in the next 12 and a half seconds is is, that's wrong. That if you're confident enough in your basic skills that you figure that that you can figure stuff out, great. Present this complete BS front, but you better than pay it off. Yeah. 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 I agree. Yeah. And that's what you did. But see, the fact that you were willing to just go and then put in the work and do it is why you've done all these amazing things and Thank experienced you. all these these people and, and brought you to where you are today. You know, it's the journey in itself is what makes it fun. You know, what you decide to do with it is up to you. But right. that's that's incredible. It really is. I mean, some of the things that you've done, like I said, and the stories that you have now, but even with, with, your, with your book and what you're doing, I mean... As as a society, or just as human beings, you know, uh, it, the stories that go along with food. I mean, everybody we've been doing that mm-hmm. since the beginning of time. You know, absolutely. Really have, I know. am certain. I am certain, with no knowledge, that plenty of p- cave paintings um, were about the hunt for dinner. Mm. 
That's true. You know, yeah. we've, we've been eating together since the beginning of time. Yeah. 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 No, you're right. And it's, uh, and it's something we, we even do it even after we're gone. Think about mm-hmm. it. Even at a funeral, somebody says, what are you bringing for food? Oh, you know, yeah. it's, yeah. it's, I mean, we, we kind of, we, we take food and we revolve it towards celebrations pretty much in everything mm-hmm. and anything we do in our lives. Yeah. You know? And we and have certain traditions uh, like traditional foods that like, I know I look forward to it, specific holidays. Oh, yeah. my, my mom's in the South. So, you know, always looking forward to certain. Where, where are you from in the South and what are your dishes? Uh, North Carolina. Okay. So you're <laughs> mustard barbecue or vinegar barbecue? I am. I'm the sweet bar, uh, barbecue. Okay, that, yeah. <laughs> no, that, that, that's, that's mm-hmm. pretty much the earliest. Yes. Yeah. Well, a, a lot of, we have a uh, German heritage in our, um, uh, my grandfather was part German. Then so you should we, have. Then you should have the yellow sauce. I know. I've tried it. I've tried it. I mean, you know, the there's that big barbecue debate. <laughs> Although, frankly, you know, come to think of it, um, even the plain vinegar sauce, I think, had a German touch because it was reminiscent of the flavors back in Germany, such as sauerbraten. Right. Yeah. I love that. When I was in Germany, I was. So excited to and go into a restaurant and have a traditional German, which really I thought was very similar to what I remember getting a lot of times, you know, in my youth with the sausages and the sauerkraut. So, yeah, but see, that's it's fascinating because German food gets the crap beaten out of it quite unfairly. It was really good. Oh, there's German food is fantastic. Now you add a beer with it, the German beer. <laughs> you know what? Oh, oh, man. Nothing wrong with that. Oh um, man, delicious. No, German food's great. Um and yes, it traditional foods can be heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, although I'll tell you, when I was living in Frankfurt, down the street from me was a Gestetta, a little working man's pub restaurant. And they made the greasiest, biggest most amazing schnitzel on the face oh, of the earth. And I would always tell myself, I'm just going in there for a beer. <laughs> and then I would have a schnitzel. And how can you have a schnitzel without potato? Oh, and, yeah. <laughs> and I would just waddle home. Now, luckily, I wasn't home much. I was on the road covering news. But I got to tell you something. Although it, it, my favorite food in Germany, and this is uh, this goes back to understanding a culture, was in the old days, before the wall came down, crossing from West Berlin into East Berlin was like in the spy movies. Right. They they would, you know, they'd put the mirror under the car. They'd check for stowaways. It was, um, even though you knew you had done nothing wrong and you were a journalist and you had some sort of implicit protection, mm-hmm. it was pretty nerve-wracking. And yeah. then when you'd get through to the East Side, it was like you had gone from a Technicolor movie to a black and white movie. It was mm-hmm. drab and gray and dreary. Um, and I always looked forward to, after we got through, going to a little stand under the uh, S-Bahn, the elevated train, yeah. where a guy sold Weisswurst, these plump white sausages. Mm-hmm. I think they're made of veal. It might be pork. It might be both. And you would get them. They would come with hard roll and some ketchup, uh, some mustard. Mm-hmm. And the roll wasn't split like we eat hot dogs here. So you take a bite of the vice first and you take a bite of the roll and you dip them the vice first in the, in the mustard and you'd sit outside. And I I described it. 
I don't know if it's in my book or in a presentation I made as kind of a glimmer of light in a dark place. Uh, I always looked forward to that. Wow. A simple course, being the sort of pig that I am, I also look forward to the grilled pig hocks and on the other side of the border at Hartka. So, you know. That's amazing. Well, you know what? See, then again, there you go. There's food. You know, it, it just brings joy, mm-hmm. you know, depending where you're at. That's, that's amazing. Do yeah. you have a favorite comfort food? Do I have a favorite? That's a very good question. I'm going to give you a strange answer because it doesn't really fit most people's perception mm-hmm. of something that is warm and kind of mushy. Um, for me, it's bagel, locks, and cream cheese. Oh. That's that's my death row meal. Yeah, yeah. New York bagel. I, I'm, you know, even being here in California, you know, people say, "Oh, you know, want bagel?" I'm like, "Oh, yeah, no." <laughs> there <laughs> are the there are a, not the same. Where are you in California? I'm well. I'm actually in uh, Orange County, so I'm kind of in Southern California. Yeah, there are a couple of places in San Francisco and LA that have gotten great write ups as artisanal bagel joints that are replicating New York bagels. Um, unfortunately for you, the, the best are apparently in San Francisco, but it, it's not impossible. I mean, one thing that has happened over the past few years is an artisanal ba- bagel movement has grown up and, and there are bagel bakers in many places in the country who are now doing it the old fashioned way. Uh, Rosenberg's in Denver even treats their water to mimic the mineral content of New York City water, which many people say it's the water that makes I, I'm not sure I believe that. But um, yeah, so it's it's not impossible. But look, in writing this book, I was lucky enough to be welcomed to the inner sanctums of Russ and Daughters, a more than 100 year old appetizing store on the Lower East Side of wow. Manhattan. One of the, well, in my view, the greatest appetizing store on earth, although don't tell my friends at Barney Greengrass. Okay? <laughs> I actually, I actually buy more from them because they're closer to where my daughter lives. So I can actually, I call Barney Greengrass from the Lincoln tunnel and say, I'm coming in. Here's what I need. He's got my credit card on file. <laughs> my wife runs in and grabs the bag while I sit behind him. Anyway, the folks at Russ and Daughters were fabulous. They, they allowed me behind the counter to try to slice locks. They allowed me at their production facility uh, in Brooklyn where they make their own bagels. Wow. There's, um, and I went to Acme, the smoked fish company that among others supplies them and almost everybody else at their plant in Brooklyn. And what's interesting there is most of their production comes out of a plant in North Carolina. Hmm. Uh, some comes out of the plant in Brooklyn, but specifically among the some coming out of Brooklyn is the stuff that they do specially for their top customers like Barney Greengrass, Russ and Daughters, Zabars, and get this, Kenny and Ziggy's in Houston, which is run by a, a Jewish guy from New York. Anyway, wow. they they uh, they produce special lots of uh appetizing for those uh purveyors to the specifications of those purveyors um and that that was a ton of fun that that was great Mm -hmm. that that's amazing well you know we 
have had so much fun with you, David. I, you have been a plethora of information and insight. And uh, it has been so much fun. Um, where can everybody find your book? And as you guys know that are our circle of friends, all of David's links are going to be up on all of our social media and our website. And uh, we will have direct ways for you guys to get a copy of his book. And I highly recommend it because it's going to be an amazing and fun read. Um, but we're uh, just, just you can give a quick shout out. Where can can they find your book? Uh, you can find it anywhere online that, that sells books. Um, I would ask you, if possible, to use Amazon because they collect the metrics that that help boost sales. Mm-hmm. But uh, Amazon, uh, Walmart, Target, uh, Barnes and Noble, Books.com, uh, just jump online there uh, and and grab it. Um, and by the way, uh, I'm glad if if you want to, if the lovely women I'm talking to don't mind, uh, if you use them as a conduit, um, I'll get you my uh, address and send me your book and I'll sign it. Oh, that's nice. Oh, Thank you. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So, so you guys, you heard that. So if you want to reach out to us on our media page and uh, leave your information and then we'll get you uh, connected that way if you want to have uh David sign it for you. But yeah, that is that is so much fun. So besides this and your book, I mean, what what have you got in the works? What's what's coming oh, up for you nice. in the next couple months? Anything? Well, I, I'm working on a second book called Eating While Standing. Ooh. About Ooh. all the ways basically our our on-the-go food culture, everything from mm-hmm. hot dog carts to donuts to to takeaway coffee to food at fairs to oh, and, and oh, parks, and of course the uh the food truck uh and in a slightly different vein i'm soon to announce the name of my new syndicated radio show <gasps> which has nothing to do with food it's all about um the music of the great american songbook the wow. stuff that was first done as far back as the 30s or 40s, the, the music that became standards that is still being um, played or recorded anew by today's artists. Oh, I, I love, love it. That. Yeah. I love it. Okay, we're going to need you back for that one because uh-huh. that's another I, I'd story. Be, I'd be glad to. <laughs> yeah. <It's>, uh, it, <laughs> because- too, is a labor of love. Oh my gosh. I I love listening to that, you know, with, with Spotify and, and having the ability to download any music that you want, you can go back and grab that 30 and four. I love the 40 music. I love oh, big yeah. band music. I, I well, will listen to that. I love it. I'm just working right now on the Andrews sisters. Oh, and, really? Um, oh, <laughs> yeah. There's some, I got to tell you, you start, you get this stuff in your head. You can't stop humming it. <laughs> I know. Uh, <laughs> It's good stuff. It's, uh, <laughs> I've been, I've been, uh, I was working on Mel Torme yesterday and I've been singing Lady Be Good for the last 25 minutes. Oh my but One of the shows I'm going to do is, is songs about food. Oh, that's yeah. fun. That's yeah. fun to be able to get. I can't think of one off the top of my head. But. Oh, well, let's see. The Andrews sisters, beans and rice. Uh, Frank Sinatra's lady is a tramp. She goes to dinner at eight. I mean, there's, you can, uh, I, I'm, I'm sure I'll find the oh, yeah. breakfast at fun. Tiffany's. Uh-huh. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There'll be plenty. There'll, yeah. there'll be a ton. Yeah. So. Well, oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely have to come back. And by because... the way, how do I sound? This is my new microphone for the show. You sound great. It's crystal clear. Well, there yeah. you go. 
Yeah, it sounds know. good. I, it I sounds splurged. Good. <laughs> 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 well, thank you so much, David, for being with us. We definitely want to have you back. And uh, when you get your links and you're ready for your radio show, send them on over and we'll go ahead and we'll forward those on to all of our circle of friends too. So, but uh, yeah, thank you again. Thank we you. loved having you. You were so much fun. And you guys are great. So thanks for inviting me and I'd love to come back. Oh, perfect. All right, guys. So you have an opportunity to find David Page's book, Food Americana. Please go to Amazon. Also, all his links will be on our podcast. If you look in the description and again, on all of our social media, and we are so glad that you are with us and we will look forward to seeing you next week. Again, we are just ordinary friends trying to live an extraordinary life. We will talk with you soon. Bye. All right. Bye y'all. This episode was brought to you by KeepOnSharing.com. They're calling themselves the first truly ethical social network. They'll share back 50% of their revenue with their users, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. It's free to register, and they never sell your information. You can list your products, events, and content for free. Adult content accounts, be gone. They're fun, positive, and encouraging sites supporting local business. In a day and age where social media sites, even well-established ones, are being brought to light left and right for their questionable and sometimes downright archaic business practices, KeepOnSharing.com is a well-needed breath of fresh air. While you can share personal content, news articles, or just about anything for fun and profit, the marketplace allows practically anyone to sell anything at any time from anywhere. But on this site, you are the boss. I cannot express how amazing it is that KeepOnSharing.com shares 50% of all revenue back with the users on top of having a truly transparent, supportive, and clean business model. Check them out. I'm signing up. Will you? Go ahead and meet me on there. Just go to KeepOnSharing.com. A link will be provided in this episode's description. 